Minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. You can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at TarotByGinger.com. And she is a tarot reader, evidential medium, and a healer. And I highly recommend her. And that is TarotByGinger.com. And now, without further ado... Our guest for today is Stephen Gray, and this is part two of um, the episode about psychedelics, and uh, we weren't able to cover everything, and uh, thanks for coming back on to do part two. Yeah, happy to, happy to do that again with you, Gary. Fantastic. So, you know, we were... Um, Talking about you know how you got into the psychedelics and, and a lot of the benefits of them, but um, you know we're, we're one of the, some of the things that we, we talked about earlier about talking about on the show is you know how psychedelics can affect the future of humanity, and mm. um, you know and, and that is in the book you know and mm-hmm. um, so I would like to uh, hear a little bit about how how the psychedelics can help move us as human beings. Mm-hmm. forward in the sure. process. Yeah, well, I hope I'm not repeating too much from what we talked about in part one. Um, this might be a, a, a replay or a review mm-hmm. of that, but maybe that's okay, too, to refresh people's minds. Um, I, I have tended to see psychedelics as having two overlapping, interwoven, harmonically married um, functions or capabilities. And um, one of them is that they are. They really are, and and everything that I'm saying, by the way, is all precipiced on doing these appropriately. And I imagine, did we talk about that last time about set the proper and setting, set and yeah. setting, and all yes. that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I won't review that then. Um, but you know, optimal situations that situation that's safe and with intention uh, for doing some healing or awakening work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, supportive container. That's the setting. Um, so, uh, it, in that optimal circumstance, or those versions of optimal circumstances, um, cannabis has these two overlapping functions, in the way that I describe it anyway. Others would describe it differently, no doubt. Um, and one is that they, they, they are true, true truth serums. They really are, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, they... Uh, so, so what they do just sim- really simply, um, and this is like, uh, you know, pre-kindergarten level of chemistry, you might say. Um, these, these chemicals, these substances, the chemicals in these medicines are very, um, friendly or simpatico with our existing brain chemistry and receptor sy- sy- systems, pardon me. Um, they're non-toxic, for example. Uh, you know, unlike many pharmaceuticals, they, they won't kill you even in high doses. 
freak you out, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, or you might vomit a lot if you if uh, if you drink a lot of ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. You can vomit if you drink a little ayahuasca too, which is another thing. It's a purgative in that sense, clears out psychic toxins and sometimes physical toxins. Anyway, um, uh, uh, they um, they. Uh, they open up channels in the brain. That's the sort of simple, non-scientific way of putting it. Um, they stimulate certain kinds of uh, neurotransmitter activity. They dampen others. There's Apparently, this isn't solid science yet. There's been a lot of talk about it, but they talk about, uh, people have been talking about the DFN, the default mode, no, D, wait a minute, DMN, default mode network. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an area of the brain uh where uh, kind of basic functions happen, logic, linear thinking, uh, well, not necessarily linear thinking, but a lot of the sort of practical aspects of the busy mind, you might say. And uh, they seem to have discovered through things like magnetic resonance imagery, MRI, um, uh, photographs or whatever, that that the the DMN quiets down with some of these psychedelics. Um, and so it allows uh, more uh, connections between different parts of the brain. Uh, there, there's a, some famous uh, pictures that you can easily find on um, on the internet, uh, like looking down, I guess, at, uh, as if like a sort of like a drawing of a skull, and they have these little colored dots around the perimeter of the inside of the skull, of the, which is the brain, really. And um, under a, um, in a quote-unquote normal sober state, these little colored dots are not communicating with each other like between different regions of the brain. And then they've showed the same picture uh, under the influence of psilocybin. And there's all kinds of lines connecting all these, um, all these different otherwise uh, separate or, you know, discrete areas of the brain. So um, a lot is happening in the brain when you take psychedelics. And one of those things is they are they, they function as showing you truths about yourself. And they can do that in various ways. They can give you messages about the things that you need to work on. Uh, they can, um, for example, let's take the example of uh, iboga or ibogaine. Iboga is a root bark from Western Equatorial Africa. And ibogaine is the uh, isolated psychoactive alkaloid. Um, iboga is has been used for you know, millennia probably in that part of the world as an initiatory substance um, uh, with this, particularly with this uh, uh, religion uh, called Bwiti, B-W-I-T-I. Mm-hmm. It's actually legal to use in Gabon and some neighboring countries. In Gabon, the president, the former president, actually called it a national treasure. Can you imagine <laughs> the president of the United States calling psilocybin a national treasure? Right. <laughs> cannabis or something like that? We're, we're not quite there yet. No, we're not, no. No, we're not quite there <laughs> no, yet. We're still trying to get cannabis legal. <laughs> yeah, give us another 50 years, maybe. Anyway, um, so what Iboga does... Uh, or ibogaine, or both of them potentially. I, ibogaine can be stronger because of it being concentrated, right? Uh, so let's take ibogaine for example. Um, it's it's used in addiction treatment centers uh, where people go uh, residentially, oftentimes for a week or two. Uh, and I, a proper one, an ethical one, would have um, experienced sort of overse- overseer guide kind of people. 
and um, uh, like a professional, a medical professional should be on site, a nurse or a doctor. Um, and and then it's a one-on-one -on -one kind of a thing. You take the ibogaine, it's very long-lasting. It can last 24 hours or more. And what people say, this isn't reliable, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. But one of the things that has been described uh, by these addicts is it's like it pulls down a, a movie screen in front of you and it literally shows you, sometimes in visual imagery, I'm told, uh, where you turned away from yourself in a sense. Like we're talking about addicts here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that uh, the addict is uh, somebody who's trying to um, escape or numb the pain, get away from it, you know? So that pain goes back typically to very early in life, maybe even past lives, but that's another story. Um, and so the Ibogaine can potentially show you where you um, kind of hit the wall, as it were, it's not necessarily one incident. It could mm. be sometimes a traumatic incident, but sometimes it's like, uh, you know, abusive parents or whatever, you know. There's different ways uh, that that can happen to people. And then um, they feel like this need to um, try to mollify the suffering in, you know, involved in that. So the, so the uh, Ibogaine can actually show you that and give you a chance to bring it up to the light. This is, a, I think, I'm not a therapist, but this is a basic principle of therapy is that, uh, and healing is if you can bring something to the light and see it clearly without judgment mm -hmm. about it, um, then it has the opportunity to dissipate, maybe not immediately, but perhaps over time. Um, MDMA, for example, works that way. Uh, in a lot of cases in therapy, it's proven to be pretty damn effective in dealing with PTSD which we were talking about a little before we mm -hmm. hit the record button there. Um, it's a pretty prevalent situation, you know, and I was just talking with you before we you hit the record button about the, the uh, um, probably extensive amount of PTSD that's going to occur to people in Turkey and Syria who have experienced right. this earthquake. Um, these kind of things are extremely painful um, and, and can be long-lasting, in a sense permanent if you don't, deal with them, right? So what MDMA does, I hope I didn't say, talk about this too much last time. I don't mean to, I don't no, want to I don't be repetitive. talking about it. You don't remember talking about it? No. No. Okay. So, so what I've, what I've read, uh, I mean, I've taken MDMA, so I know kind of how it works myself. Um, but, um, what is sometimes said is that it, it knocks out the fear factor in looking at the stuff, the pain, because with PTSD, it's really difficult to even acknowledge it. Sometimes it's buried in the unconscious. Sometimes it's um, so painful to focus on it that just doing so re-traumatizes the person and makes it just even worse almost to you know, bring it up in a therapeutic uh, context. But what MDMA does supposedly, doesn't always do this, I don't think, uh, and there can it can go sideways in certain cases, I'm told, by a pro, by a doctor. But for the most part, what it does is um, knocks out the fear factor in looking at the, the issue and brings in incredible love. You know, it's called the love, sometimes called the love medicine in that mm -hmm. way. Um, and at the same time, keeps your mind clear so that you, you can really get what's going on and you can talk about it with a therapist, like if you're in a one-on-one -on -one situation with a therapist. And you can remember it, too. Um, so, uh, you know, these are the kinds of, so that's the truth serum part of these things, allow you to look at things, uh, you know, in a different way and bring them up to the light. 
So that's the, that's the kind of the one side of this interwoven function or capability that I was talking about. The other side, which isn't all that much different, and again, it's just one way of talking about these things, mm -hmm. is that they can enter you into the space of a reality that's, that's far vaster, far bigger than your little story of, of who you are and what's real in life, right? They can open you up to this big picture. And for example, that's what's happened in the uh, Johns Hopkins uh, studies that they've done at Johns Hopkins universities, for example, with, uh, uh, you know, terminal, uh, terminal cancer people, uh, patients, you know, um, about, I don't know, just, you know, don't anyone quote me on the actual numbers, but I think they said, you know, in follow up, they followed these people for quite a while afterwards that somewhere around 30 to 35 percent of them had an experience during that session with that psilocybin mushroom psilocybin well in a in a capsule i think in that case but um of, of a mystical experience and basically this is loosey-goosey you know you can look these studies up um, but basically if i recall correctly the people who had the most mystical or the most powerful or most direct mystical experiences were the ones who changed their um, attitude about you know their impending death the most and so they just completely flipped it so that they you know just relished the life that they had and um, stopped grousing and worrying about the fact that they were going to die and wow. just make the best of it and, you know, make relations with people in their lives and you know that kind of thing um, and and as I understand it that was because they saw themselves in the context of this uh, you know divine eternal uh, you know, cosmos, uh, life altogether. And somehow that ends up having, letting, allowing people to feel that they're safe and you, there's nothing that can happen. Even death doesn't destroy that because you're, you just kind of, in a, you know, I don't know what happens. You melt back into the cosmos. You're always part of it. Maybe as many people would say, including Chris Bay, since we're sort of talking about this book, how psychedelics can help the, save the world. Chris Bache in the book um, talks about uh, how he was shown in the course of this 20-year period of 73 high-dose, carefully constructed uh, LSD sessions he did, uh, he was shown uh, many of his past lives uh, and, you know, all the different roles and situations he was in, the good things he did, you might say, and the bad things he might have mm -hmm. done in the past. Uh, and so we're always you know, part of this larger context. And so when you die, um, you're not necessarily disappearing altogether. I mean, obviously, we don't really know what happens, but a lot of people that have had these kind of deep mystical experiences of the wider universe, mm -hmm. like people like Chris Bache and deep psychedelic states, um, will say that, yeah, there, you know, there, there's, we're always, there's no, there's nothing outside of that. And we're never outside of that, regardless of our, um, of our, you know, particular little story about who we are. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's reassuring for a lot of people and encouraging. Um, another thing that they do in terms of your question, uh, about how the role of psychedelics in the future. So they, 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 they have immense power for healing, uh, which is really important because we all need healing. Right? right. Um, and they open you up to our actual relationship to life, to the cosmos, to the divine, to spirit. They, they, they allow us to, um, uh, you know, connect, uh, 
you know, to re to reality, to the unconditioned reality that's not the little stories that we've been telling ourselves all these years. When I say little stories, that maybe sounds kind of judgmental, but you know, I I did it just like everybody else did it. We form um, uh, what our, my old Buddhist teacher called a cocoon mm -hmm. uh, that we live inside that we think will keep us safe, but never actually quite does because there's always a struggle to maintain it and to protect ourselves and all those kind of things. But when we can start to learn to release from that, to um, look at the wounds that have you know, held us back and tightened us and frozen us and all that kind of stuff and allow that stuff to dissipate and learn to trust, which you know, to me is almost like the most important word, trust, capital T-R-U-S-T, right? right? Then um, uh, life gets better. You know, and it's not just for ourselves, it's for everybody. You know, because when you're more at peace, when your heart is allowed to open more, when you trust life more and you can relax into it, then um, so much of that struggle was um, interfering with our ability to enjoy and live skillfully, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, intelligently, creatively. It's like we all have way, most of us have way more creative ability than we than we maybe think we do, uh, and um, opening up and clarifying our confusion and learning to get out of our heads a lot more of the time and just be present and pay attention, etc., etc., and walk dignifiedly through life um, can have an immense effect on the individual, of course, but also the collective. And I think that's the ultimate goal in the sense is that minds connecting and uh, creating a world that's going to be, um, in a sense, you might say the promise, the original promise of life in the first place. Right. I mean, you know, there's so many different ways to talk about it, but I have this, you know, kind of, um, you know, my fantasy or my story that I, you know, I didn't make it up myself. I got it from reading and putting things together and all that, um, is that, uh, whatever that eternal creative energy is, it's alive and it's intelligent. We don't exactly know what it is, and that's fine. It's, you know, people often call it a mystery, right? right. Um, th those intelligences uh, imagine this world into being, right? I agree. Yeah, and so the promise, I think that or the gift that they were giving us was to enjoy this incredibly brilliant and beautiful environment uh and so uh they're they're not giving up on us for one thing mm -hmm. um and uh the psychedelics can you know break some of the barriers that uh, that we've created for ourselves so we we have that potential and and then the group aspect of it that i was talking about a moment ago is that I think this is one of the sort of, uh, I don't know, major ideas or archetypal, you know, constructs or something for a species going forward is that, the, as Brian Eno called it, the augmentation of intelligence, the augmentation of minds, that when we put our minds together, you know, one person can come up with some great ideas and act on it, but, you know, uh, working together with other people and shared minds can augment that in some very powerful ways. And I think that's probably uh, our future destiny. Wow. So I could say more about that, but that was a long ramble. So I better let you ask me another question or, or say something for yourself. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking like, 
you know, you know, obviously, if, we, if, if individuals are are able to heal from trauma and PTSD and get better perspective on themselves and the universe and have more spiritual mm-hmm. balance, you know, the more balanced people are going to create a more balanced society, also. So yeah, exactly. it, it's going to that, and I think that's where you're 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 kind of heading is like you know, how it's, it's going to help the world is by by more people doing these things, healing themselves through the plant medicine. That we're going to end up that that it could lead us to living in a more co- I don't know cooperative society, and mm-hmm. one that maybe better idea sharing and better, um, maybe in just new perspectives too. Because the more time, also like when we have a different perspective on something, we can fix problems. You know, like that the saying that Einstein says: the same brain. That creates the problem can't solve the problem with that same thinking. Psychedelics exactly. allow you to step out of that and hit mm-hmm. it from another angle, right? Yes, and not just in the moment. That's I think that's the most important point, you know, aspect of these. Is it's not just about having a new perspective right there and then, mm-hmm. which is which can be very valuable, of course. And cannabis is really good for that too if you use it carefully, properly. Um, but it's how they can change you over time. You know, um, yeah. to be allow yourself to be more connected. Uh, you know, again, you know, I may be repeating things I said in our part one, but I'll say it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we create what what you know Buddhist teachings would call the ego, the it, and and they would then call that the illusion of a separate self that's disconnected or separate from everything. Um, and that implies and involves an ongoing struggle. Uh, we can learn our way out of that and find and see through it. And at that point, as you say, everything just goes better for everybody, really. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would like to think that the gift that has been offered to us is joy, love, and creativity. Peace, peace, you know, inner peace. Um, I... I think if if if, uh, if if anyone who doesn't think that that is possible is shortchanging themselves, you know, we're still working on. We're you know, most of us are still quote unquote working on it. Uh, yeah. You know, I wouldn't. I'm. I, it'd be ridiculous of me to say I'm enlightened or anything like that. But you know, thank you to the plant medicines. Frankly, uh, the plant medicine experiences that I've had. Uh, I've seen these states. I've been in those states. They don't last, but they're, you know, as the, as the wonderful novelist Tom Robbins once said when he was asked in an interview years after his, you know, psychedelic heyday, the interviewer said, uh, "Do you still take LSD?" Because that was the one he was taking back in the day. I think he's in his 80s now, so we're talking 60s, 70s there. Um, he said, "Oh yeah, once a year for a reality check," you know. It's like to remind you. Mm-hmm. So if you've if you've entered that space of timeless, um, uh, pure, untainted, undisturbed peace, even for a moment, you know it's real. You know that's unarguable. You know people have. It's it's not uncommon for people that have taken psychedelics to have this experience where they feel like they've come home. Mm-hmm. It's like you you on some level you always knew it. You know, it's like you always knew it, but you you buried it so deeply that you've completely forgotten it. Right. Um, 
I, I had that yeah. kind of experience with like a near death experience during an epileptic seizure, mm. where, where you know I was just I was still conscious, I was still aware, mm-hmm. but it was so much peace. There was no suffering. Mm. There was just I mean, it was just perfect. There was just no suffering at all. It was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to. When I came back, I was a little bit angry. <laughs> Damn, I'm back, you know. Oh but, yeah, that's a common story too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people are freed from their bodies, um, and they're not feeling that the pain and suffering. You know, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a common one when people have those near death experiences. Uh, you know, I may have mentioned in our previous interview. I should have listened to that damn thing again so I knew what I've already said. But um, you know, a little review isn't bad for you know when you're learning things anyway. Uh, but in any case, uh, for about 12 years, I went to quite a few Native American church peyote prayer ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And I got fairly close to the man who uh, ran, uh, led most of those ceremonies. They call that person a road man in that world. Um, so uh, uh, Kanukas Littlefish was a road man who, I most, who was the one I most encountered. And I got friendly with him and... He actually stayed here, up here, came up from Washington State and stayed at my place for a couple of times, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and um, Ken told me a story, or Kanukas told me a story about uh, how he'd had like a really major near-death experience where he was gone for what seemed like a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't remember if he said how long he was physically gone for, but it, it was a major gonzo, gone one, you know. And he said he was hanging out with the elders, uh, and and they basically said to him, uh, you know, you can stay. You don't have to go back. Uh, but uh, if you do go back, this is just his personal story. Now I'm talking about mm-hmm. you're going to be a healer for the rest of your life. That's that's it, pal. You know, you're committed. Um, so, you know, make up your mind because you can stay. You don't have to go back into that painful body because he had a lot of things wrong with him. He had diabetes. He had, um, you know, no cartilage left in his knees or hips. You know, he was, he was a physical wreck that way. Um, uh, so, you know, getting back into that body would have been pretty damn painful for Canucas. But, you know, he made that commitment to come back and be a healer for the rest of his life. So, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Mm. And those things happen. One of the other things that you know, you know, is in the in the, in the psychedelic book, and then you also have another book on cannabis itself. You yes, know, is cannabis a psychedelic? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, it depends on who you ask, mm-hmm. uh, and it depends on how you define psychedelic. Uh, technically, or whatever that is, scientifically, medically. Um, the narrowest definition of a psychedelic is a substance which acts on the 5-HT2A receptor system. Uh, cannabis does not act on the 5-HT2A receptor system. It acts on the um, endocannabinoid receptor system. Um, so from that point of view, it's not a psychedelic. But from my point of view, um, uh, functionally, you might say, I would say cannabis is a psychedelic. The word psychedelic, it's from the Greek, psychedelic, um, mind for psychic, delic meaning um, uh, manifesting, basically. So it translates as mind or soul manifesting. Um, and the other term that was 
gaining popularity for a while in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s uh, because uh, psychedelics had been overused and co-opted by marketers and God knows what, used really cheaply. They didn't think it was functional anymore. It had too much baggage. So somebody came up with this word, entheogens. Right. Entheogen. Mm -hmm. So en meaning inner, theo meaning God, and gen meaning generate, basically, also from the Greek. And it basically meant generating the divine or God within, right? So by both of those definitions, I would call cannabis a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. But only in the right circumstances. Uh, dose dependent sometimes. I mean, sometimes it might require a strong dosage, which is a whole other topic and a challenge in itself. Um, the, you know, the one simple way of putting it is the stronger the dose, the less you want to be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and in my view, you know, as a, uh, an educator on cannabis, as a spiritual ally, I would say even in the milder doses, uh, your chances of finding out what this plant can really do for us in its purest and most potent form uh, require you to leave space mm -hmm. and not busy your mind and do a bunch of activities. You know, those things, you know, there's a bunch of activities you can do which are delightfully uh, enhanced by cannabis uh, because we often call it a non-specific amplifier. It amplifies or enhances or whatever deepens experience, uh, you know, uh, body experiences, sense experiences, etc. Um, and that includes the brain being a, a physical organ. Um, but uh, it also has the potential and it's actually quite a challenge to do that, I, I think, for most people. Some people are just sort of what you might call natural mystics or, you know, really uh, talented, so to speak, in surrendering to that space. Uh, but I think for most people, it's a challenge um, because that amplification process. Okay, so think of it like this. Uh how many people can sit down and do a simple non-form oriented follow the breath gently follow the breath kind of meditation for say half an hour and not have any thoughts i don't know anybody who can no i can't uh, eckhart told us as he can the guy who wrote power of now he mm -hmm. claims he could sit for two hours without a thought that's <laughs> lucky that's, well that's really rare well you know what in his case it took um uh it took him to have broken down to the point where he was ready to commit suicide earlier mm -hmm. in his life, you know. And by letting go of everything, he suddenly fell into this deeper space uh, and his mind quieted. But so if given how challenging it is to clear the mind, allow the mind to settle down like a pond that's disturbed settling mm -hmm. down <laughs> just without the influence of cannabis or some other substance, um, you add in the cannabis, it raises the energy level. I like to say it raises the stakes. And so that potentially becomes, it has, it has great potential because of that. It's like it can take you farther and deeper mm -hmm. in a sense, but it's also more challenging. And um, because it's in that sense threatening the status quo, right? The reason that we keep this is probably useful for people if I didn't talk about it, hopefully, in our previous, uh, you know, interview. Um, I think the Buddhists have a great way of talking or describing what ego is in that sense. It's, again, this um, uh, little package that we've put together um, 
uh, these set of concepts, beliefs about what's real, unreal, true, not true, you know, um, doable, undoable, right and wrong, all that stuff. It all exists here. It all exists as a collection of stories, so to speak. Um, and all of us do it from the time we're, you know, almost the time we're born. As uh, soon as we start having any kind of social recognition or understanding of what's going on around us, we start to put together what's going to allow us to cope and survive, right? And that's the cocoon that I mentioned earlier. We create this little fortress where we think we're going to be safe. Um, we think we're going to survive. We think we're going to be able to make our way in the world. And absolutely no judgment applied to that when I say that, because I did it, everybody did it to mm -hmm. one degree or another, you know. But then once you've done it, and especially if it's successful, well, I don't know, maybe if it is not successful, so to speak, in terms of coping, it's extremely limiting from what our potential is, you know, in regard to what I was saying earlier about the psychedelics, that you have this potential to open up, open us up to this unconditioned reality, which is, you know, far more powerful and far more real in a sense than this, you know, package we've created for mm -hmm. ourselves, right? So um, the psychedelics, of course, can undo that, dissolve them, but cannabis can do that. Uh, and cannabis has a really interesting way of doing it that, um, I don't know how to put it, it's almost, almost like it's safer almost than the major psychedelics, and it's simpler. Um, you know, like a strong ayahuasca or psilocybin experience, mm -hmm. it's not so much about the physical. It's 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 the mind. You know where the mind goes. You know you might even have an out of body experience. Well, you some people do have out experience, out of body experiences with cannabis, but that's not generally what it does. Right. What it it's it's an embodying medicine. Uh, I th and I think that's what makes it so valuable and so you in a sense unique among the the uh, psychoactive medicines or the psychedelic medicines is that um, it's about connecting with uh, every, you know mind, body, and spirit all together. Um, I, I, I like to um, quote, uh, and I did in, in the, well in that book or a previous book, the French um, uh, philosopher, mystic poet, priest uh, Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Last word is C-H-A-R-D-I-N. If anyone wants to look him up, there's writings and so on. Brilliant guy. Anyway, he said, physical energy must be mastered for spiritual energy to manifest. Right? So in other words, we're, we, this, this, is, this is our reality. We have these bodies. This is, you know, if, you know, people say we're spirits traveling in a, in a physical vehicle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are, of course. So if we don't learn how to master this physical body in the sense of allowing it to open, and this is, comes back to where all these wounds, you know, shut down, they stop the movement of energy, right? You know, that's where I think somewhat the basis of acupuncture is helping get energy moving through the meridians and all that, and yoga, you know, at least Hatha yoga anyway. Um, and so cannabis, uh, well, here's one way of talking about cannabis that I think is functional. And uh, in the cannabis book, uh, there's a chapter by a woman named Joan Bellow, who right. also has a book called The Benefits of Marijuana. I've been reading that book, actually. Yeah, cool. Yeah, she's good. I like her. Um, and I think she passed away recently. Uh, she has several books. Um, I think she wrote one called The Yoga of Marijuana or something like that. 
Um, in any case, the way she talks about it, she says, when you first smoke, and it, it doesn't happen like this when you take it uh, orally because it comes on slowly over an hour or more, but when you smoke or vaporize it, the effect is immediate. And um, uh, the, the effect of this exo or external cannabinoid meeting this ready receptor system that it's like just waiting for it, like, come on in, baby. Mm -hmm. um, we're married here. We're going to have a little, you know, dance here. Uh, this endocannab, inner endocannabinoid receptor system. Uh, it, uh, some people say, for example, it, um, it balances the two lobes of the brain, balances the fight and flight mechanism of the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, um, uh, mm -hmm. nervous system. And, by doing that, uh, it allows blood to flow more freely. So um, yeah, blood flows more freely into all the, you know, the extremities is the word I think that Joan uses. Um, and, in, and, and that would be, by the way, why, uh, or it's a, certainly, a, I think, a plausible explanation for why we experienced enhanced sensory, you know, perception, mm -hmm. such as uh, taste and sound, you know, people... It's almost ubiquitous that people say, wow, music sounds better when I'm stoned, right? Um, visual acuity or appreciation. You know, you could pull out a book of the great paintings or something like that and look at it when you're high. You go, wow, these are really beautiful. Or mm -hmm. walk around in a park, you know, and see you know, all the aspects of nature and when you're high, you know. So, um, uh, it has, cannabis has that, um, uh, function to uh, open us up that way. And if you challenge that, cha pardon me, not challenge, channel that ability, that amplification ability into trying to be present, allow your thoughts to calm down, um, observe them as they come up, let them go. That's just basic, simple, universal meditation practice, right? Then it actually has this potential to, in a sense, gently um, enter you in through the medium of, you know, the synchronization of m mind and body. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, as Teilhard de Chardin said, you, you can't do this without the cooperation of your body. You know, if you're, if you're shut down physically, you're shut down emotionally and spiritually too, mm -hmm. right? It's the same, same, same. Yeah. Um, so cannabis has this wonderful, you know, I mean, I've taken lots of ayahuasca and psilocybin and peyote and all these things and they're they're not the same you know you're not focusing it's not about entering into the you know the peace that passes all understanding through the body in that way um, as i say it's more of a larger encompassing kind of mental uh, experience in that way whereas cannabis has this potential to do that without you know the, all the great visions and you know you don't necessarily see the psyche you know the um you know the beautiful geometric patterns of ayahuasca or, you know, um, you know, get taken over by a jaguar who carries you across the room or whatever, um, or swallowed by a serpent or, you know, um, uh, as Terrence McKenna might have said, you know, hang out with uh, self-replicating machine, uh, dancing, laughing machine, basketball bouncing machine elves, or, you know, <laughs> whatever, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, some people in higher doses orally can have some very strange and, you know, bizarre experiences and maybe really powerful ones too. But, uh, you know, in these more kind of um, quotidian, you know, or functional kinds of doses, uh, uh, if you pay attention to your breath, let it come and let it go without, um, 
trying to manipulate it. Notice when your thoughts come up, let them go. You know, even though, so this is where part of, part of the reason why I say it's a challenge. And, a, and I like to say it's an advanced spiritual medicine in those ways when it's used that way, um, is that another part of the challenge is that, you know, the amplification process or uh, function tends to give you the impression that your thoughts are brilliant. And some of them are actually, but some of them are just, you've, you've, they're, you're seeing them from this amplified state that mm -hmm. makes them look more amazing oftentimes, right? And so you can be caught into that, like, oh, this thought's come up and it's so amazing. I want to follow it. I want to go with it. I want to work it for a while. I want to follow this narrative for a while. So yeah, that's good sometimes, you know, but if you're really trying to find out the pure, you know, center of what this medicine can do, I think it's essential to spend at least some of the time you're dancing with it, so to speak, um, encountering it, uh, just trying to empty into its space. You know, it's like if, you know, another analogy is like if you're making love with somebody, you don't want to be in your head, hopefully, you know, you don't want to be thinking about something else. You want to be there with that person. You want to surrender uh, without thought, so to speak, for the most part into that space and then you meet that lover there right mm -hmm. same way you if you think of cannabis as your lover as your teacher you know you have to surrender to her you have to be fully there for you, you can't for her you can't be with her i mean you can't be distracted now, well we will as i say it's inevitable thoughts right. will come up but the work in my view of it is to keep coming back um and so cannabis you know, to sort of sum this section of, of the conversation up for the moment, I mean, certain, you're certainly welcome to uh, bring up more about it or ask me more questions, but to kind of put a, like a, a cap on it or, you know, encompassing view, I think cannabis has immense potential for the cultures going forward. Uh, a couple of people in my cannabis book called it the sacrament of peace. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's safe, it's legal in many places, it's easily accessible. Um, etc etc it, it it can be done in ceremony with people it can be done alone uh, it can be done in combination with yoga meditation things like that if you really know how to use this medicine and it doesn't take over you so that it's using you and that's really important i think with cannabis because it can be so beautiful and so seductive and so rich that you just want to keep going back and going back and going back and um and people often want to escape into it as well. You know, they want to hide out in there, you know, in, in the sort of the uh, virtual man cave, as it will, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. And, and in fact, that's often a literal man cave, you know. <laughs> um, you know, you're down in your parents' basement getting high all the time, but you're not necessarily benefiting from it. In fact, it can be quite harmful doing that because you can just disappear into this little man cave world. And as Kathleen Harrison in the cannabis book puts it, and that's actually my favorite chapter in the whole book, that um, in her experience, and this is an elder, she's been around for a long, long time, and she's a cannabis lover too, um, but she also has seen people, and she says more often than not, it's young males mm -hmm. um, who get way down the rabbit hole in the man cave thing, and they don't want to come out of that into what she called the daylight world of 
reciprocity, re, you know, responsibility and connection, you know, with people. So cannabis can be dangerous that way or harmful, I guess is a better word. In fact, I just interviewed uh, um, a really interesting doctor on my YouTube channel, the Stephen Gray Vision YouTube channel, uh, called uh, Dr. Uh, Dominique Morisano. Uh, and she works with uh, cannabis dependency, among other things. Uh, she uses sometimes psychedelics like ketamine, uh, uh, working with these things. But, you know, her job in that regard is uh, to deal with dependencies and, mm -hmm. and addictions. And she says that she sees a fair number of people who, even if they come in at the beginning and they don't, you know, they're, they're not happy, they're not doing well. And um, so they work together, they have several sessions, whatever, and, and they may sometimes not think that their cannabis use is a problem, even though they're getting high all day, every day, right? But at a certain point, they'll go, oh, dang. Okay, I, I get it. The cannabis is a problem for me. I do have a psychological dependency on it that's blocking me and dulling my experience and keeping me away from connecting and moving forward in my life and so on like that. So I just wanted to, that's kind of a sidebar almost. I just mm -hmm. wanted to point that out that, that um, that's really uh, something to consider. But when you're using the cannabis rather than it using you or you falling into a, a trap of dependency, then it has this potential again in you know the ways I've been talking about here uh, to uh, open us up in this powerful yet gentle way at the same time, which is what mm -hmm. makes it unique. It's both powerful and gentle in the way that it does that. Gentle in the sense that if you relax with it, if you surrender to it, 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 it has that relaxation quality. Right. It has that opening quality. Yeah. One of the things that, that I remember when, I, when using cannabis was a feeling of like watching myself. You know, it was like all of a sudden I'm like out here and I'm watching myself and I'm watching mm. my thoughts as like almost mm. like a, a third person. Mm. Is that a common experience that people have? Hmm. Um, yeah, well, maybe people experience that in different ways that they wouldn't necessarily define as being outside of yourself looking in. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, for me personally, I think it's more like just I'll have these insights. That's the truth serum aspect that I was talking about earlier. You know, some people find they get quite vulnerable with cannabis. And that's another important issue, actually, is that... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people have experienced paranoia. Well, yeah. there, there there may be some other reasons for paranoia, but I suspect that the the most common reason that people have experiences of, of paranoia on cannabis is that it it undercuts the ego. It undercuts your game. You know, exposes it for for what it is. It's a game. Maybe a maybe an anecdote would be illustrative for for this purpose. Um, I think stories can be quite useful that way. Many, many years ago, way back when I was in my 20s, uh, we had some brownies with, that we had made, and they were quite strong. And I and a few other people were taking them at a, at a gathering. So there was like, I don't know, maybe 15 people at this party. Um, and um, I... Um, I ended up sitting on a chair in the side and not talking to anybody because 
uh, what I saw, and this is the truth serum aspect of this, was that I had my way of relating to people was through my persona, through my personality that I developed, you know, the ego package that we talked about. So I had this, you know, kind of public persona, you might say, that I mm -hmm. trotted out in social situations. But it wasn't really me. It was it was this character that I had created, right? Mm -hmm. uh, famous um, uh, psychiatrist who came out of the Sigmund Freud uh, group um, early in the 20th century, Otto Rank, R-A-N-K, called it the lie of personality. Um, and a, a, a Jungian psychologist that I know about uh, has written books as well, a guy named James A. Hollis, H-O-L-L-I-S, for anyone who wants to look any of these people up. Uh, he called it the false or provisional personality that we put together, mm -hmm. right? So I couldn't do it that night. I couldn't connect with it. I just simply could not. Well, somebody might say, well, that's great. You know, you had that insight that, you know, you, that you were um, living public, you know, socially through that persona. Um, but in that experience, it wasn't great at all. It was depressing because I didn't have anything to fall back on. I didn't have, I didn't have any relationship with what you might call, what the Buddhists would call the authentic self underneath that. So I didn't know how to truly be myself. Um, you know, with all its, you know, guts and glory, uh, you know, the vulnerability and genuineness and, uh, you might say, empowerment and authority of being truly yourself. I didn't have any ability to connect with that. So I sat in a chair feeling depressed. <laughs> and a friend of mine came over and sat beside me and said, uh, you know, what's, what's going on? You know, she saw that I was different. And I, I, I told her what I just told you, essentially. And mm -hmm. she said, well, you know what? I like you better this way. You know? <laughs> you're more vulnerable. You're more real. You're, you're, you're less guarded, right? Mm -hmm. Because that whole persona thing is like, it's, like it's, a, it's a, a shell that surrounds the authentic inner you, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's, that's where cannabis can be really powerful, in that way, if you can be with it, but also I was yeah, I was talking about the paranoia function. So the paranoia func aspect is that you feel um, vulnerable and exposed. Uh, it you know par paranoia is is uh, is fear with a story essentially. It is fear, right? And it's all me. It's all inward. It's all self-involved, narcissistic kind of thing. Like oh, you know, I'm under threat, right? There's mm -hmm. threats. Um, so that's all, that's pure ego, right? Pure ego experiences that it's all about you. It's all about what your, you know, survival issues are in that moment. And so cannabis exposes that vulnerable part of us, part of us. And that can be, you know, as I say, paranoia inducing, but it's, I think, valuable good, for a lot right? of people. Yeah, it's been valuable for, yeah, go like, ahead. Wow, this is a part of me that, you know, I'm trying to protect all the time. Yeah, yeah. A guy I know, really interesting guy, um, uh, who's done a lot of amazing things in his life and is quite comfortable with major psychedelics, has taken a lot of them, um, and is, you know, not afraid of them or anything like that. He won't do cannabis because he had an experience in his, I don't know, early 20s, maybe he was in university or something. He was with some friends at a cottage or something like that. 
and there was like a little island out in the lake. Mm-hmm. And several of them swam out to this lake, I mean this uh, island, right? And uh, he was a confident swimmer under normal circumstances. And they got out there and they smoked some pot. And he said he felt afraid of swimming back for the first time ever. And he thought like, oh my, I don't want anything to do with a plant that makes me feel afraid of swimming across, you know, that's something I've done dozens of times. Well, my interpretation of that is just what I was talking about, that it brought out that vulnerable part of himself uh, in that sense, you know. So um, I, I, I think that's something that's really valuable for people to know about because then they recognize it, recognize it's just a thought. And again, that's why using cannabis in an intentional, focused kind of a way can be wildly different in a good way. Uh, I um, occasionally lead uh, cannabis circles where we focus on that kind of silent meditation and break it up with uh, sounds, you know, crystal bowls and a bit of guided meditation and all that. And then at the end, sometimes we do all day ones where we include a mild edible and then have, you know, two or three times during the day where we have a couple of puffs to keep the energy level up to keep us going. Mm-hmm. We'll start at 10, 10.30 in the morning and, um, you know, we'll do a bunch of different things, but it'll go on till about four and then we'll share a meal together, potluck dinner kind of idea and then a sharing session. And I've had lots of people say, or a number of people anyway, say, this was like nothing I'd ever experienced with cannabis before. It was radically different. Sometimes it's people who say, well, I gave gave up cannabis years ago because I didn't like where it took my mind. I didn't like the thinking process that came up, you know, this sort of self-analytical, judge sometimes judgmental, self-sabotaging kind of thoughts that because of the amplification function of cannabis can put things all out of perspective, mm-hmm. right? But if you don't, if you're sitting in meditation, more or less, and you you see those thoughts come up, you don't have to buy into them, and that mm-hmm. is so relieving. That is so refreshing to be able to do that, you know, and realize it's just a thought. It's not you. It's just a thought, right? Um, and so, you know, I've had people kind of shaking their heads, going, "Wow, like, it's amazing that you can do that with cannabis, right?" And again, that's why I think because of its essential safety and its availability and its legality in many places, it's cannabis has great potential for serving us going forward as the sacrament of peace. That's fantastic. You know, some of the things that Russell read in in that particular book too was the history. You know, how cannabis was probably used as um, an anointing oil in a sacrament. And for incense mm-hmm. in the past for like religious experiences, you know? Oh, yeah. There's um, there's a, a really amazing report. I'm not sure if I remember the exact words of it. It's, it's called the um, Indian, uh, India Hemp Drugs Report or something like that. It was a, it was a report in 1893. It was, came out in 1893, 94. Um, commissioned by the British government, who at the time were ruling India. And uh, somebody commissioned, some government body commissioned this extensive report where they investigated the use of cannabis in India, which was extensive almost everywhere at the time, right? Um, And then they came back with this report. And basically the summary of the report was, you know, because I guess people were trying to find out how harmful is this substance Mm -hmm. socially, you know? And it was like, no, 
It's not. It's not harmful socially at all. And then there's a section in this thing by a guy, I think his name's J.M. Campbell. It's the appendix. It's one of the appendices to this thing. And it's incredible. Uh, it gets quoted a lot uh, because he talked to people who were using cannabis spiritually. And they, and, and they say things like, um, it frees you from the, the weary round of blinded matter, you know. It opens you up to the God state. Uh, so it really does have that potential. I think it's, again, uh, an advanced practice. You mm -hmm. really have to learn your way into that and to be able to do these higher doses. And those would often be oral doses, by the way, I think, um, which was common in India. They, you know, you might have heard of Bangladesh, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's not good. You know, I had a couple of close friends of mine uh, were in Varanasi, um, which is like this holy city in India on the Ganges, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, um, somebody gave gave them a drink of Banglasi. They, they had no idea how potent it was. They basically spent two days in bed. Like they couldn't get out of bed for two days, you know? <laughs> you know, so, but if you're a trained you know, a long-time experienced trained meditator, then presumably you know how to challenge, channel that level of energy or that kind of energy, mm -hmm. right? Similar with uh, so-called major psychedelics, I think that in the higher doses, you truly have to surrender to them. You have to channel the energy. Um, so, yeah, there is that potential. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so you're asking, like, historically. Yeah, so... You know, a lot of history isn't written down, and a lot of it's been suppressed. But, uh, oh, here's another favorite story of mine. It's not even a story. It's just a little reference. Um, the Sufis, S-U-F-I-S, mm -hmm. I guess, Sufis, um, they are uh, the mystical tradition. They're like the monks of Islam uh, or the uh, wandering sadhus of India. They're that equivalent in the, is is in the religion of Islam. People know them as the as Muslims, right? Um, uh, so they're the the mystical tradition or inner inner mystical tradition of, of Islam, and they were kind of wanderers a lot of the time. And they had groups, they had communities, and things like that. But they kind of rejected the material world in similar ways, I believe, that the sadhus of India did. Um, and um, or a monk might go into a monastery to uh, take him or herself away, a monk or nun away from the material world and all its temptations and just focus on trying to be in the presence of the spirit, you know? So the Sufis were like, were that, and they're still around. Uh, but in their in their real heyday, as I, I think, I'm, I haven't really done extensive historical study on this, but um, perhaps this is really loose, so if anyone's watching or listening to this who has studied this, you know, my apologies, but I think I'm just making a point here, really. Um, perhaps, you know, from around a thousand years ago to about 1500 AD or CE, as some people call it now, the common era, um, they and beyond, you know, more recently, uh, I don't know when it kind of came crashing down, but I think they got repressed at certain points. Mm -hmm. um, and now they've been complete, you know, their use of cannabis has been completely repressed as far as I know. Maybe there's like little secret groups that are using it, but publicly Sufis are not known for using cannabis anymore, I don't think. Um, but in 500 years ago they were, and that was well known um, because we still have record of it. Um, and uh, so there's this little quote that is always 
really been a mind blower for me. It's by a poet named Fuseli, F-U-Z-U-L-I, Fuseli, from around about 1500, the year 1500. And uh, he wrote, because I guess they were using hashish a lot. And he said, hashish is the Sufi master. Or you might emphasize the word is and say, hashish is the Sufi master. And that, to me, is a stunning statement. What it implies is that if you take hashish, you know, presumably in a fairly high dosage of one kind or another, and you know how to channel that powerful energy, it opens you up to those true teachings, those unconditional reality teachings. Uh, that's a potent statement, right? So, right. you know, God knows how many places in the world have, 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 have been like that, uh, where we don't have record. We don't have any or uh, you know written record of it. it I imagine a lot, frankly. It's got to be. I and mean, the plant's been with us. The plant is far older than, than humans. Oh, yeah, far older. It goes back like 30 to 90 million years in the lineage of cannabis. And so the moment that people started, you know, well, actually, even before they were so-called humans, which I don't know how far back that is, a right. couple of million years, people, you know, are you know, apes or whomever was around at the time would be foraging. And this plant grows naturally. It grows easily. It's a, sometimes called the roadside weed, right? Um, uh, doesn't need any help from us. Uh, it just grows in the natural world like so many other uh, plants do. And, you know, there's no way that people would, you know, that mm -hmm. apes or, you know, chimps or whomever would have missed it. They would have found it. And uh, if you chewed it, well, when it's raw, you know, you don't necessarily experience particular psychoactive effects but if you threw it in a pot and you know cooked it you might um, or if you if you were a farmer 20,000 years ago uh, you or 10,000 years ago or whatever and you uh, had a bunch of this stuff and you discovered you could use it for uh, rope making and um, you know uh, clothing uh, hemp clothing mm -hmm. you know, or medicine or whatever uh, but you had a bunch of it left over and you, you know, had a bonfire fire outside your house or whatever, or even, you know, the fireplace inside. And like, okay, let's throw these stalks and leaves away on the fire and, uh, and stand a little too close to them. And all of a sudden you're going, okay, now I've discovered there's a whole other use of this plant too. <laughs> you know, yeah. it can, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a, I don't know if it's you'd call it a spiritual experience, but there's a well-known story because it guess, guess must have got written down. The some some of the Greek guys, I forget which ones, Herodotus maybe or some of them, had written this down. From again, excuse me, scholars, maybe a couple thousand years uh, BCE BC, you know, uh, the group of people or. A nation or community called the Scythians, and again, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, I'm it correctly. That. Yeah, well, apparently they would get together in a, you know, like a small tent or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, like almost like a sweat lodge kind of scenario, with a fire, and they'd throw a bunch of cannabis on the on the fire, who create this giant billows of smoke, and then apparently uh, just laugh hysterically, you know, just go into great laughters of joy and shouting out, yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> so it has been around. It, it, it goes back to the beginnings of humanity and beyond. I like to think of cannabis as our best friend in a way. You mm -hmm. know, it's, um, it's certainly a cannabis are us situation. It's mm -hmm. completely simpatico with, you know, the endocannabinoid system and whatnot. Mm. 
How yeah. do you think um, we can get things like cannabis and psychedelics? Um, it more so make them more socially acceptable and make them more accessible for people to use them for um, healing benefits and spiritual mm. benefits and, and you know mm. as, as a medicine. Yeah, well, it's happening. It is happening mm-hmm. in space, right? Um, I, I think it's changing fast. We've yet to see, you know, where it's going, of course, um, without crystal balls. Um, but uh, it, it's got to be, it's got to be changing really, really fast because it's they're so they're so they're being talked about everywhere now, right? I mean, Prince Harry, right? You know, he has this book. Yeah, you know who Prince Harry is, yep, right? Yep, he did ayahuasca. Yeah. Yeah, he's the guy that yeah, the ban- mm-hmm. abandoned the team, you know, and he's used ayahuasca and psilocybin and, you know, 5-MeO or DMT or something like that. I mean, how straight can you be? Prince Bloody Harry from the royal family, right? Uh, you'd think, my God, if Prince Harry is doing psychedelics, mm-hmm. that's how mainstream does it get, right? I mean, this guy's not a radical. He's not a hippie. Um you know, and then of course there's Michael Pollan's book from three, four years ago called How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. That book, you could call it How to Change Your Culture almost, because that book resonated deeply. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful book. Have you ever read it? No, I haven't. I'll oh, it's great. It yeah, well, well, to me the thing that I found really stunning about that book, because I've read a lot of psych, you know psychedelic literature over the years, not that he's an expert, but that's actually kind of the beauty of the book. He portrays himself as a kind of an everyman, you know, as a journalist who's exploring these things. So he doesn't—he hadn't really had psychedelic experiences before he made this investigation. And Michael Pollan is a great journalist, in my view. He—he he had already had million-seller books on plants and things. Uh, the, well, the um, what is it? The the, the car, carnivore's dilemma or something like that. I for, I've forgotten the name of them. Um, there's two or three books that he had uh, that. You know, number one bestsellers on New York Times and all that, um, and um, about food and plants and all that. So somebody suggested he look into psychedelics. So he, he, he I don't know, spent a couple of years doing this investigation, but doing it hands-on. So he found people that were reliable guides and would do psilocybin and some of these other medicines, and then he wrote about them as this kind of everyman. So he's describing the kind of complete ego dissolution in a way that I was referring to earlier as their potential as this kind of like gee whiz, you know, just like almost matter of fact, not that the experience was matter of fact at all. Uh, However, he described, uh, I think in the, and he's, he described it like this in interviews. I I heard he did a bunch of them, you know, at that time. And uh, he said, he saw his consciousness spread out over the landscape like paint and all his thoughts and everything he identified with himself kind of um, dissolved into something like confetti and just poof, you know. And here's a guy who had not really had much experience with psychedelics at all, writing as this sort of outsider, not part of the psychedelic explorers community, if you will. And so somebody could pick up that book it wasn't writing 
for the psychedelic community was writing for everybody mm -hmm. so somebody who had never done psilocybin or never done any of these psychedelics or maybe had had a couple of you know whatever recreational type experiences with the mushrooms when they were 18 and then moved on when they got you know became an adult they could read this book and they'd go oh well it's not so weird it's it's normal it's sort of normal you know people can do this so that book had an immense influence. So yes, this is another typically Stephen Ramway way of answering your question that uh, it is already happening a lot. And then it's just a question of how that unfoldment continues. You know, so you, th you think our government legislators will legalize? Well, they'll probably be the last one to come along, certainly in the <laughs> United States, you know. Uh, I think it'll, it's sort of coming up from under, uh -huh. which is another kind of principle of what's happening, I think, and certainly has to happen on this planet is uh, individual and collective empowerment uh, that, you know, that we, you know, the, the patriarchy must die. Uh, that being told what, was it that Terrence uh, used the term, uh, Terrence McKenna used the term, uh, you know, cognitive liberty, that we all have the you know, the innate, hmm. um, un infallible or un unimpeachable right to cognitive liberty, to do what we want with our minds. Ideally and ultimately and in the proper way of things, nobody has the right to tell me I cannot um, uh, take uh, psilocybin, for example. It's my mind, you know. If, as long as I don't harm you, or cause societal society any harm in any way, it's absolutely no one has the right to tell me not to do that. And that's where we have to be heading in culture. And we will eventually get there, I think. What you, you know, Dwayne Elgin in the in my in our psychedelics book calls it a mature planetary civilization. Chris Beige, another contributor, again calls it the birth of the future human. So the, the future human that he saw in his visions with the high-dose LSD stuff that we were talking about uh, would be a person who, again, is at peace with themselves, is not conflicted with themselves, uh, and is open-hearted. So, you know, this is where we're hopefully going, that we are all empowered for it. We're all uh, our own authorities, you might sense, say. You know, so that's where this, the med these medicines have to go. I don't know quite how we get there. And <laughs> I said, mm -hmm. governments, especially the American government, not the not especially. I mean, there's some European governments that are farther ahead, and certainly states, individual states, are way farther ahead of that. Like Oregon, for example, has decriminalized uh, or even legalized the use of psilocybin for therapeutic use or whatever medical therapeutic use. Uh, so it's it, it's happening, and it will. It's got to. It's just because it's. It's just right. It's just common sense on one level. Once you get rid of biases and ignorance and misinformation and fear, then these medicines have immense potential. And again, that's really what the book is about. Uh, it's not simplistic. It's not like, oh, yes, they're going to save everything. It's when they're used carefully, when they're used intelligently, safely, effectively, by the right people in the right circumstances, then these medicines are our most powerful tools for waking us up. And that's really needed right now. Right. So I think yeah. that's something that the government, media, religions fear, is people uh -huh. waking up and becoming 
in, in a way, more conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's a threat to, to them. Absolutely. And, and, and that's because, you know, as I understand it anyway, uh, no doubt my understanding could be slapped around a little by some other people, but as I understand it, uh, that is a spiritual psychological uh, function, I guess you could call it. Um, uh, excuse me, are you hearing me still okay? Because I accidentally pressed a button on the back of my mic. Did I change anything? I hear you. Your voice sounds okay. deeper now. No worry. No. <laughs> I'm just getting deeper into it. Yeah. Um, no. Um, no. When uh, this is an old story on the planet, and it's actually almost the central story for the collective, the species, is the attempt of uh, the successful attempts historically of some people to control the minds and the experience of other people. This is what the Christian Church. The orthodoxy, the um, you know, the hierarchy of the Christian Church has often been doing for the last couple of thousand years, and it really comes down to a spiritual problem or a psychological problem uh, in individuals, which is we are overwhelmed by the vastness of this world. We come into it naked, with no, you know, with no understanding of what's going on, and nobody really quite knows what's going on anyway. So people are always trying to. This is what. You know, I was talking about earlier in our conversation of this notion of creating a, an identity that makes us feel or think we're safe. We never do completely feel safe with it because we have to maintain it all the time, like I was saying, and struggle to keep, you know, threats away and all that sort of thing. Um, so uh, we, we create this thing to protect ourselves. And somebody said... Uh, how does this go? Um, oh, yeah, here's the sort of the basic rule of the universe or whatever for humans. Whatever you say goes, but only for you and anyone you can convince to believe what you believe, right? So this is why, like, kind of evangelistic, evangelistic fundamental-type Christians, for example, among many others, mm -hmm. uh, they're so into proselytizing. They're so into trying to tell you that you know Christianity is the only valid religion, anything else is the devil's work or useless or whatever. Um, there's only one God, and it's the Christian God, and there's only one Savior, and it's Jesus, and it's only available to people that embrace the Christian faith and accept Jesus into their lives. The reason that people do that, I'm sure, I'm sure of this, um, is because they, their inner self, their true self underneath all this, the authentic self, knows that they do not know, right? But they don't want to acknowledge that because they need to feel safe. So it's not enough to believe it for yourself, oftentimes, you know? Like to believe that, you know, the things I just said, mm -hmm. that, you know, my way is the, is the only way. Um, it, it doesn't quite take care of the, of the existential angst, you know? But if you can then convince a whole bunch of other people, so that you've got a group of people that all go, oh, yes, it's, that's the way it is, then you start to feel a lot safer. Hmm. So ultimately, you'd like to convince the whole world. You know, then it's like, oh, okay, now we know my way is true. Um, and so if you then have particular circumstances which allow you to take you know, secular control or religious control, which is essentially the same thing, uh, in terms of power, you know, historically, 
you know, the, the Holy Roman Church had immense power, immense power, right? Mm -hmm. So governments and church uh, hierarchy people, oftentimes these are the control freaks. These are the ones that are trying to control everybody else to try to make themselves feel safe, right? It's a basic psychological function and illusion, as I understand it. So they just don't want to accept the, they don't want to live in the fact that life is um, confusing, disoriented, and painful and joyous all at the same time. And we don't know why or why it's happening to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Buddhist teachings talk about embracing the unknown mm -hmm. or, you know, the beginner's mind where you don't have it all pegged down where that way you can actually grow, you can actually learn. I don't know, we probably shouldn't go on much longer, but maybe I'll, this would, might be a nice little roundup. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not trying to sell Buddhism to anybody, by the way. They just happen to be people who have been around uh, without the distractions of TV and social media for a couple of thousand years, examining mind, you know, sitting down and shutting up and paying attention, as Terence McKenna would say. And... Um, so they've, they've had lots of time to you know, do an, an intensive uh, and extensive an analysis of how the mind works, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, they see all these things that we do to shelter ourselves, and they recognize these things. And basically, yeah, well, okay, I'm, I'm oh, oh, I know what I would, sorry, I almost lost my train of thought there for a second. One of the things that the Tibetans came up with is what they call the Wheel of Karma. Um, and and uh, the six realms. You've, mm -hmm. you've studied Buddhism. You know yep, a bit about yep, this, I know right? About it. Yeah. Yep. yeah, right on. Okay, so the way it was taught by my teacher and his lineage, Chugyam Trungpa, um, was that it's, it's very useful to think of these as psychological realms that any one of us could go through. Yes. So there's the, um, uh, just, you can start anywhere on this circle, but start from the bottom. Uh, you've got the hell realm, then you've got the hungry ghost realm, then you've got the animal realm, mm -hmm. then you've got the human realm, you've got the jealous god realm, and the god realm. So um, the hell realm is all conflict, all fight, all division and other and all this and anger and all that kind of stuff. If you come out of that, say, if you're starting from that point, let's say finally you get tired of doing that, you know, and, come out of it a little bit, you might come up into the hungry ghost realm, which is quite common in human experience. So it's just the, it's, it's portrayed as there's a, there's an iconography of a, some person with a very long, thin uh, neck, but a huge belly. So they've got this constant hunger, but they can't actually get the sustenance down through this ridiculously right. long and skinny neck, right? So it's a poverty mentality, and you're always seeking and always wanting stuff. The animal mentality is also a common one, which is you got blinkers on, you got blinders on like a horse, and you just put your head to the grindstone and you refuse to look at anything other than what you're going for. You're just chewing up the scenery, so to speak, right? Uh, that's a way to try to make yourself feel safe. So they say that the human realm is the only of the six realms where there's an opening, where there's a possibility. And the reason I mention it is because that's said to be the most confused realm, the most, in a sense, um, open realm, because it's not a realm of certainty. The hell realm is like certain, you know, you know, you, everything's horror and hate and fight and anger. Mm -hmm. Hungry ghost realm is obsessed with, you know, mm. animal realm is obsessed with ignoring it all. 
And then the, and again, I didn't mention the jealous God realm and the God realm. My teacher told, described the God realm as actually being the most eluded of them all. Mm-hmm. That's when somebody, everything's going perfectly for them. You know, everything is going well. Nothing is going wrong. If all, everything is flowing. You know, everything they touch turns to gold, kind of like the old, you know, Midas touch sort of idea. <laughs> uh, but he said it's the most eluded because, um, uh, it's, it can be very arrogant. It can be very closed minded, very insensitive to other people. But also just underneath the surface of that is this unacknowledged fear that you could lose it at any time. Yes. Um, and, and when that happens, you potentially fall into the jealous God realm, which is you want to get back to that state. But because now you're trying, it doesn't work. And so you can cycle right back down to the lower realms again. You can, you can see this uh, at work in sports. I've always been interested in sports. I used to love running around and playing games, you know, team sports when I was a kid. And I, I've always just loved athletic grace and uh, and the, the the drama of competition and all these kind of things. And so I do things like I kind of, I don't watch games. I don't have a TV, but I, I'll watch highlights of hockey or NFL football or whatever, you know, or World Cup soccer sort of thing. And, uh, you know, like hockey, for example, it's a long season. It's 82 games. Mm-hmm. And you'll watch a team. Look, it's a good team, you know, but they're going on a winning streak. They might win 9, 10, 12 games in a row, right? But then on that next game, because hockey is kind of a, there's a lot of puck luck, you know, they've, the pucks will bounce off a leg and go in sometimes. So maybe you just have an off night. Guys are a little tired. Maybe they traveled for the game or... They get some bad puck luck, and all of a sudden, they lose to one of the lower teams in the league by 4 nothing. They were in the God realm. They thought everything they touched, every time they touched the puck, it was going to be beautiful, right? <laughs> but then they have this one bad game. Now they're doubting themselves. That's the jealous God realm. And, uh, and now it just gets worse. And so it's not uncommon to see them go, a team like that's just had an amazing winning streak, now have an amazing losing streak because they're... They've said this. Hockey players have said, suddenly your stick feels too long or too short for the puck, right? Because you're doubting yourself. So I think it's really instructive to see that um, we have this potential for openness all the time, right? And so it's that don't know mind. And it's it's this central to where we're going because what we were just talking about, control, you know, that's been exerted over whole societies, uh and that's fading. That the patriarch is dying. It's got to be. You know, it's the only way that we're going to grow up mm-hmm. is if we trust our own. And this is Buddhist teaching too. You know, trust your own intelligence. But it's really important to say that when trusting your intelligence doesn't mean trusting your opinions about things or you know cons- your conspiracy theories about things or whatever. It means trusting the innate intelligence of the. Um, mind that is free from opinion and free from concept and free from belief and able to experience the world directly mind body spirit where you can just go yes that is real not because i believe it's real it's because i experience it as real right right yeah wow yeah i, I completely agree you know plus you know, not to mention we both. My my Buddhist teacher had the same Buddhist teacher that you studied under. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. who was that again? You might have told me before. Her name was, her name was Trime. 
Oh yeah, her. yeah. No, I I don't know her. Yeah, but yeah, yeah she studied under Trumpet too. Did she have a like a Western name? That would be her Buddhist name, right? That was her Buddhist name. I don't even know what her Western name was. Oh okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think, uh, Gary? Have we uh, have think, we done it for today? I think we have. But before we yeah. wrap it up, I want to take a uh, thank you for coming on to do part two of this. And um, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Well, thank you again for asking that question. I appreciate that. So uh, the book, uh, it's, it's easy if you go to my website, which is uh, stephengrayvision.com, spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-R-A-Y, vision.com. Uh, because there, uh, I, I don't sell, for, I'm, I'm, I'm not a businessman, <laughs> you know, so I'm not, I don't have like an e-commerce thing. I don't sell the book from the website, but a website, but there are links to, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, different things. The book is everywhere. So you can get it off Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. Uh, I, I would, uh, I like to encourage people to buy books directly from their small, independent, local bookstore because those kind of stores are always having a tough time surviving, especially as everything goes digital and online yeah. and all that stuff or more things do. So keeping those little independent bookstores to get, uh, alive, I think, is really valuable, really important. So I would encourage people to do that. But yes, you can go to my website. And by the way, while you're on my website, uh, I would really appreciate, like right on the homepage, it says join our community or something like that. Um, somebody else does this for me, so I don't always remember. Um, uh, and that allows you to subscribe to my newsletter. And I would really like it if people subscribe to my newsletter because uh, then I can inform them of new developments. I can share the occasional gem of wisdom. I don't sell things other than promoting the book itself. Uh, but that's indirect anyway, as I say, because I have to go elsewhere to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, uh, I hope people will join the newsletter and keep up with latest developments <clears throat> and updates and upcoming events and, you know, as I say, the occasional gem of wisdom. I also have this YouTube channel, Stephen Gray, all together, one word, Stephen Gray, Vision um, YouTube channel, and those interview. oh, I interview, I've got about, I don't know, 30 of them now. I've kind of slow. I don't do them all the time, but I, that's over the last three years. I've got about a little under 30 of those now, but they're all with really uh, fascinating sort of leading influencers in fields related to psychedelics and consciousness transformation. Uh, and that's also, those interviews are also available on audio um, on Spotify and a couple of other channels like that. Um, and I'm on Facebook also as Stephen Gray, all one word, Vision. Uh, and I'm just getting started on things like Instagram, same name, uh, TikTok, just started to learn about a month ago, <laughs> uh, started to use Twitter a little bit, uh, Stephen Gray, and also just started to use LinkedIn again. Um, so, you know, there's a number of ways to get in touch with me. So much social media. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. There's another part of my brain that was like, I'm just going to buy a horse and a travois or a teepee and, you know, just go into the desert somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Not take my phone. Right. (laughs) That'd be great. Um, Yeah, so I'll put a link to the website and to your YouTube channel in the notes of this episode. And thank you for coming back on again. It's been a pleasure having you. And Oh, thank you. And by the way, the book again is called How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. 
uh, colon, visionary and indigenous voices speak out with 25 brilliant contributors into it, in it for the purposes that we've been talking about today. And there's Helping. a cannabis book too, which is a great book. Oh yeah, Cannabis and Spirituality. Uh, yeah, that's the other one. Yeah. Same idea. I've got 17 contributors in that book and I've written a few chapters for it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for being on and just hang on for a moment and I'm going to play the outro. Alrighty. So yeah, let's stick around after you stop recording, right? Yep. Yeah, good. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. listen to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Kuchu.